The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. We have been going through the Gospel of Luke, which is one of uh, the four Gospels in the New Testament, and it's about primarily the ministry of Jesus Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They complement one another, and we've been looking at the Gospel of Luke, 24 chapters in your English Bible. We've gone through the first six and a half chapters. We introduced uh, the, some of the first part of chapter six last week, and we summarized the ministry of Jesus. We noted last week where Jesus was at in his ministry. Jesus' ministry was about three and a half years long. He started ministry when he was 30 years old. We know almost nothing about Jesus' life the first 30 years of his life because he hadn't started his ministry yet. Then at age 30, he was launched into ministry by God the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit, beginning with his baptism by John the Baptist, and for three and a half years, nonstop, 24-7, Jesus was full-time in ministry as the Anointed One, as the Sent One of the Father, as the Messiah, not only to Israel, but to the world. And so he ministered for three and a half years, and his ministry was characterized by Primarily by teaching and preaching. He was a rabbi, which means teacher. But he was more than a rabbi. The New Testament is clear. He was the God-man. He is the God-man. He wasn't just a man. Jesus is God. Jesus has always been God. Before he was born of Mary, he existed eternally as God, along with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And he came down to the planet that he created. To take on a human body, to live a perfect life for 33 years, to proclaim his message, and to offer himself as a sacrifice for sinners, to pay the penalty as their substitute, died, was buried, rose again from the dead, and went back into heaven. He's now in a glorified physical resurrection, perfect body, and he is still the God-man, king of the universe, savior of the world, judge of every soul. That is who Jesus is. That is the testimony of the New Testament. And it's the same message that the Gospel of Luke is trying to portray to all who would listen. And that's the beautiful thing about the Gospel of Luke is because most of what we're going to be studying week to week are the words and the teachings of of Jesus. And that's what we have before us today in Luke chapter 6, verses 20 to 26, are the words of Jesus. Last week, we saw information about Jesus in Luke chapter 6, 1 through 17, describing Jesus' ministry, describing some actions that he took, calling his 12 apostles, training his disciples, doing miracles. It was describing his ministry, but last week, we didn't actually get to hear Jesus speak. Today, we do. As a matter of fact, the whole sermon is nothing but the words of Jesus. This is not just a man talking. This is not just a rabbi talking. This is Almighty God in the flesh speaking. His words are piercing. They are profound. They are powerful. They're universally mandated to every person who would hear. They're also the living words of Almighty God. They were spoken 2,000 years ago, and they're still just as living and fresh 
and binding on us today. Jesus still speaks. Jesus is alive. And he speaks from heaven through his word to your heart, if you're willing to listen. All who have an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says, Jesus would frequently say. Let me go ahead and read what Jesus said as he launches now into his actual teaching ministry. And just one other contextual point that we made last week. Jesus' ministry was three and a half years long. And we've seen so far in Luke in the first uh, few chapters here that Jesus had a, he began his ministry down in Judah around Jerusalem for a short period of time. He did his teaching. He did some miracles. He created some enemies. Eventually those who would kill him. Then he went back to his hometown, Nazareth, Galilee, surrounding area. And from Luke chapter 4 to Luke chapter 9, that is the context. This is called the greater Galilean ministry of Jesus. It lasts probably about two years. And he's doing one thing primarily. And we've seen it in the text already. He is going from town to town to town to town in all of Galilee, hundreds of towns. Doing one thing, preaching his message. He's validating that with the credentials that he is the God-man by doing miracles and by healing the sick, casting out demons. But primarily, Jesus is a teacher and a preacher, and that's what we've seen so far. So we're in the midst, or actually kicking off the beginning of his teaching ministry in Galilee. And then Luke gives us in Luke chapter 6, basically a summary. If you were to ask the question, what was it that Jesus taught and preached? Because he was a preacher. What was his message? What did Jesus preach? What was Jesus all about? And we don't have a short of answers, a shortage of answers today in our world, because everybody's got an opinion, it seems like, about who Jesus was and what he was all about and what his message was. We see it in the news all the time. We see it around holidays year after year, after, without exception, on all the main magazines, Time Magazine, Life Magazine, U.S. News and World Report Magazine, and they have a picture of so-called Jesus. The same question every year. Who was Jesus? What was he all about? And what did he preach? And it seems like the world gives us the wrong answer every single time. Because here's the common themes of what the world says Jesus was all about and what he preached. What was Jesus' message? Here's what we're frequently told. Uh, his message was love everyone. No, it, that was not Jesus' message. Did Jesus talk about love? Yes. But his message was not love everyone. How, well, was his message do good, be good? That's a common one. Oh, Jesus was all about do good, be good. Was that his message? No, not according to the Bible. Do good, be good is actually false religion. That's the largest false religion in the world. Do good, be good. Jesus said just the opposite. No Man is good. You can't do good. Here's a, a common answer that we hear today in our contemporary culture. Jesus was all about, his message was social justice. Heard that one? I have a gazillion times. That was not Jesus' message. He didn't preach social, social justice. How about racial equality? No, he didn't preach that either. Jesus was not a racist. Jesus, according to the half-breed, dirty Samaritan of John chapter 4, she met Jesus and declared, he is the savior of the world. He is the savior of every race. Because there's only one race, the human race, 
that was made in the image of God. Jesus' message is not racial equality. Jesus' message was not economic equality. Some will say that that's a distortion of the truth. That's liberation theology. Jesus didn't come to eradicate poverty. He said that explicitly. The poor you will always have with you. That is not why I came. As a matter of fact, he said he was poor. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That's a shallow, superficial answer. Did Jesus care for the poor? Absolutely. Did he love the poor? Absolutely. Did he meet the needs of the poor? Absolutely. Was that the full comprehensive message that he preached? Not at all. All of these elements have some truth to them, but they're all one-dimensional, superficial. Some of them are just categorically wrong. But they're what we are hearing from a cacophony of voices today, screaming and yelling of all these so-called representatives of telling us that they know what Jesus was all about. But they're not consulting the Bible. It's real clear. And Luke tells us. So in Luke chapter 6, the rest of chapter 6 is a summary of the message that Jesus actually preached. It is not comprehensive, but it does do justice to summarizing all the main themes that Jesus taught and preached and that he requires of us. So that's what we're going to see. It's concise. It is simple. It's easy to understand. It is impossible to fulfill without the grace of God. So here's what Jesus actually preached in summary form. The most comprehensive thing that you could say, what was Jesus' message? According to Luke and the New Testament, the message of Jesus was the kingdom of God. That's the best answer. What was the message of Jesus? It was the kingdom of God. How do we know that? Because that's what he said. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15 gives a summary statement of the entire three and a half year preaching ministry of Jesus. And you know what it says? It says Jesus came preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God. That's the summary. Then the content of what that means. And then it says that he was preaching the gospel, calling people to repent and believe. What did Jesus, what was the message of Jesus? It was the kingdom of God. That's the best answer. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Let's look to Luke himself. Actually, before I read verses 20, well, I'll start, let's go ahead and look at uh, verse 20, and then I'll just read these few verses, and then we'll expand a little bit on verse 20. So here's the message of Jesus as he begins teaching. Starting at verse 20, uh, Jesus went up on a mountain in the hills of Capernaum. He prayed all night long for the wisdom of the Father to pick his 12 apostles, came down from the mountain, picked his 12 apostles, begins to train and commission them. They are now by his side. He goes on another place on that same mountain and finds a plateau where he can stand and address the crowd. His 12 apostles are in his midst. It says his disciples are also in his midst listening. That could be hundreds if not thousands of followers. And in addition to the apostles, his disciples, and it says a massive crowd was there as well from all regions surrounding that area, all the way down from Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus is up on this mountain and on a plateau, and he's speaking to a crowd potentially of tens of thousands of people. The parallel passage is Matthew chapter 5 through 7, known as the Sermon on the Mount. And here's where Jesus preaches. And in Matthew 5 through 7 and here in Luke chapter 6, Jesus basically gives the substance of what he was all about. Distilled down beautifully for us by Luke in just chapter 6. And he kicks it off with these words, starting at verse 20. 
Jesus turned his gaze towards his disciples. He's focusing on his disciples, even though there are crowds, and they're allowed to listen in, and they do. He began to say, he began to teach, he began to preach. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So the first words out of his mouth as a preacher and teacher is the theme of the kingdom of God. And then he expands on what that means. What is the kingdom of God? But that was his theme, the kingdom of God. Now, if you look at the parallel passage in Matthew 5 through 7, there are nine blessings that he gives. There's only four here, but Matthew gives nine. It's more comprehensive. And Matthew makes a few references to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. So that is the theme of this entire message. That's what Jesus was all about, the kingdom of God. And just to highlight that, look back, because we already looked at this. Look at Luke chapter 4, verse 43, or just listen. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, uh, just finishing his ministry down in Jerusalem, comes back and it says, But Jesus said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. So there it is. At the beginning of his ministry, he said it out loud. I must be about preaching the kingdom of God, Luke chapter 4, verse 43, to all the other cities as well. And there were dozens and dozens, if not hundreds and hundreds of cities in the entire area of Galilee. That's why it took him over two years to accomplish that. He was focused. He wasn't changing his tune from town to town. It was the same message, the same message. So I must go and preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. And get this, second part of verse 43, for I was sent for this purpose. Why did Jesus come into the world? Why was Jesus born 2,000 years ago? It's right here. I came for this purpose. What? To preach the kingdom of God. As clear as could be. Let's look at another verse from Luke. Chapter 8, verse 1. Same book. A little later in his ministry. Soon afterwards, Jesus began going around from one city and village to another. So he's an itinerant preacher. He's on the circuit. Going to all these cities. He's not going to miss one. In all of Galilee, where all the Jews are living. He's coming as the fulfillment of the Old Testament Messiah, the promised one. They should have been expecting this. Soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and village to another, doing what? Proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. That's what he was doing. What did Jesus preach? What was his message? It was the kingdom of God. Flip over to Luke chapter 9. A little later in the ministry, chapter 9, verse 1, and Jesus calls his 12 apostles together. He's been training them. He's been preparing them. He's been modeling for them. That's how you teach. Grooming them. And he gave them power and authority. So they finished their first year of seminary. Gave them power and authority over all demons and to heal diseases. That wasn't their main task. Jesus didn't come to do miracles. He didn't come to heal people. That was not his priority. It was to preach the kingdom of God. Doing miracles validated that he was a true preacher. Verse 2. And Jesus sent the apostles out to do what? To proclaim the kingdom of God. What was Jesus', Jesus priority? To preach the kingdom of God. What were his disciples' priority? To preach the kingdom of God. And then look at verse 11 of Luke chapter 9. Last one. But the crowds were aware of this, and they followed Jesus, and they were welcoming and uh, and welcoming them, he began speaking to the crowds about the kingdom of God. So I just wanted to make it clear, crystal clear. I could read several more verses out of Luke that say the same thing. Jesus was all about preaching one message, and it was the kingdom of God. Going back to Luke chapter 6, let's read this section of where Jesus begins to 
teach the crowds. And turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. This is a blessing. Another blessing, verse 21. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessing number three. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall, be, for you shall laugh. Verse 22, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man, for the sake of me. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich. For you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. We'll stop there. Profound, yet concise and just potent truths and statements, promises, curses from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his message. It's all about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is actually, according to the New Testament, and you read everything the Bible has to say about it, it's actually a very complicated phrase to understand. Many people, it seems like, if you don't put it all together, have a superficial understanding of the kingdom of God. For example, a typical Christian answer, I, just, I know this just from having been there myself, and then just interacting with Christians, or even seminary students, Every Christian should know what the kingdom of God is because that's what Jesus came to preach, right? Oh, I believe in Jesus. He's my Savior. Well, what did he come to do? He came to preach the kingdom of God. Oh, so do you know what the kingdom of God is? And of course you say, well, yes, I do. But when you ask somebody, can you explain what the kingdom of God is or to define it? That is a challenge. It's one of the most challenging things to do, in my opinion. Uh, and I see this at seminary when I teach my seminary students. I will ask them that question. Do you know what the kingdom of God is? Yes. Okay. Do you believe that's what Jesus preached? Yes. Please define it. And they struggle. Rarely up front do we get a complete biblical answer. There's a lot of confusion on what the kingdom of God is. A Christian today, typically, when I ask them, what is the kingdom of God? Usually they might say something like, well, it's about heaven. It's heaven. It's the afterlife. It's yet to come. That's a very typical common answer. That is not the correct answer. That's not the biblical answer. That's not the Old Testament understanding. So it is very complex. So if I were to ask you, what is the kingdom of God? And you said, well, that's heaven. That's not a wrong answer. It's just an incomplete answer. That's an element of it. That's partially true, but that's not all of it. There's a lot more. And we know that from other things Jesus said and also the rest of the New Testament. What is the kingdom of God? So that's just a question that we've got to ask. What is the kingdom of God? Where is the kingdom of God? That's another fun one. I wonder what your answer was. Where is the kingdom of God? Another one. When is the kingdom of God? When does it take place? These are very controversial, controversial even among Christians. How do you get into the kingdom of God? Another important question. Jesus answers all those, by the way. Some of those answers are given. Most of those probably are given right here. Now, how would, now put yourself, go back 2,000 years in your time warp machine and get being in America in the Christian church out of your mind and pretend you are now a Jew 
in the days of Jesus in 25 AD, there is no such thing as a church. Jesus isn't dealing with Gentiles. It's 100% Old Testament Jews. They only have the Old Testament scriptures. That is their only frame of reference. So you got to really discipline your mind to not think about anything at all in the New Testament. And then imagine Jesus coming on the scene saying, Jesus, repent and believe in the gospel of the kingdom. And he starts talking about the kingdom of God. What would a Jew have understood back 2,000 years ago? Primarily three things, a Jew, which is very different than us as Christians. Three things that a Jew would have understood Jesus to say based on the Old Testament when he said, I am here about the kingdom of God. Number one, the first thing a Jew would have thought of was the kingdom of Israel, the, theoc the physical, earthly theocracy of Israel that began under King David and King Solomon. That is answer number one. That's what they were thinking. I am here to talk about the kingdom of God. Oh, okay. King David and King Solomon and our last 1,000 years as we reign supreme as God's special people on the earth. Man, I'd love to hear more about that, Jesus. I'm a Jew. That was their mindset. This is clear in Math, uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 6, where Jesus' apostles, after he rose from the dead, they said that very thing to Jesus. Jesus, is it now that you are risen and you have proved yourself as Messiah, that you are going to restore the kingdom of Israel? That's what his apostles were thinking. We cannot fault them for that because there's an element to that which is true. So that's the main thing a Jew was thinking. A second thing that Jews of Jesus' day were thinking as he's talking about the kingdom were probably... Two paramount passages would have been 2 Samuel chapter 7, 1000 B.C., where for the first, prime, uh, first time in Old Testament history, God got very specific about the coming kingdom of the Messiah called the Davidic Covenant. And it was about the kingdom, 1000 B.C. And from that point on, Jews who knew their scripture were looking forward to the fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7, the coming of of the Messiah and his kingdom. And it was a earthly kingdom. Psalm 2 talks about it. It wasn't about heaven. It was about the earth. It was about God coming down and reigning on the earth, literally, as the son of David. And in conjunction with 2 Samuel chapter 7, they were also thinking, no doubt, about Daniel chapter 7. So fast forward from 1000 B.C. to 600 B.C., 400 years later, and God gives more information about this kingdom, the kingdom of the Messiah, that would be literal and it would be on earth. So, and then you fast forward 600 years, and that's what the Jews' expectation is. We are waiting on the Messiah and his kingdom. They gave that testimony in Luke chapter 1 when the Messiah was born. The king is here. The kingdom is at hand in Israel, on the earth, right now. And that was justified for them to think that way because that is what the Old Testament taught. But when Jesus came, he gave more information about the kingdom. It included all that, but it included more. And then the third element that they were thinking about regarding the kingdom, and most importantly, was the promised king, the promised Messiah. So those are the three things the Jews were thinking about. They weren't thinking about the church. They weren't thinking about invisible spiritual realities. They weren't thinking about when you die and go to heaven. That had nothing to do with those promises regarding the kingdom. That is a completely different worldview than we typically have as Christians. But then Jesus did give more information and he said, Well, my beloved Israel, there is more truth about the kingdom of God. And there is a spiritual component to it. And this is new revelation. 
It's never been revealed before. It wasn't in the Old Testament, but I'm telling it to you now. What you're about to hear is new. It is going to be surprising. It's going to be shocking. For some of you Jews, it's going to be disappointing. For probably most of you, you are going to be confused. That's Matthew 13, and they're called the parables of the kingdom. They are literally the mysteries of the kingdom is the word, musterion. New information you've never heard before. Jesus gave it for the first time, and it's about the kingdom of God. And most of those have to do with this spiritual component about the kingdom of God and also the delayed implementation of it incrementally over time. They did not understand that. There, were no, there was no such thing as two comings of the Messiah in their mind. It was one coming of the Messiah. And what Jesus revealed was, no, there's two. I came as a suffering servant, and later I come as the righteous judge. And in the Old Testament, they saw that as one event. So that was the problem. So, here, so based on all the New Testament has to say, here, here's how I would define the kingdom of God in light of the fullness of Scripture. Key elements. Number one, Jesus is the king of the kingdom. That's the most important. That's the plumb line. What can you tell me about the kingdom of God? Well, Jesus is the king of that kingdom. Matthew 27, 11, he told Pilate. Pilate asked him point blank, so are you the king of Israel? And he said, yes, it, it is indeed as you have spoken. I am the king of Israel. And then as the woman testified in John 4, the Samaritan, this is the savior of the world. He is the king of the world, not just Israel. So Jesus is the king of the kingdom. What else can you tell me about the kingdom of God according to the Bible? Number two, Jesus preached the kingdom of God. We've already seen that. That was his message. He came to preach the kingdom of God, whatever that message was. Number three, the message of the kingdom of God had to do with the gospel because in Luke 16, 16, it is called the gospel of the kingdom. That is the theme. It is good news about the kingdom. What else can you tell me about the kingdom of God? Number four, the kingdom of God is not one-dimensional. And there are two extremes to being one-dimensional about the kingdom of God. Christians usually fall into one of these categories on the spectrum. There's the category of those who put the emphasis only on the Old Testament and that the kingdom of God is physical, it is earthly, it is restricted to Israel. That's their definition. And that would be what we call a classic dispensational definition. So they restrict everything to the earth and to Israel. And they don't include spiritual components to it. No new elements. And then on the other side, to complement the dispensationalists, are covenant theologians. We, when you typically ask them, what is the kingdom of God? They will eliminate all the physical, almost 100%, and say everything is spiritual. So the kingdom of God is invisible. It's completely spiritual. All of it is right now. There's nothing in the future. It won't be on the earth. There won't be a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. And so they go to the other extreme. And the Bible doesn't, go, it doesn't represent it as those extremes. We have to take all of Scripture and get the proper balance, which is what I'm trying to do for you here. It includes the physical, and yes, it is a spiritual component in reality. The kingdom of God is here now, and the kingdom will be coming in the future. It is here and not yet, as one famous theologian properly said. So it's not one-dimensional. Number five, the kingdom of God is spiritual. There is another dimension. Colossians 1.13, if you became a Christian and got saved, then Paul says, past tense, you have been transferred from the kingdom of, of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's the kingdom of God. When you get saved, you enter into the kingdom. And that's in a spiritual reign and domain. You now know Jesus Christ 
Personally, you are in his kingdom. Prior to becoming a Christian, you were in Satan's domain, under his reign, in his kingdom, which is real. So there is a spiritual component to the kingdom of God. Number six, the kingdom of God is also physical. It's not all just spiritual. This is all over the Bible, the whole Testament, even Jesus, Luke 22, verse 30, talking about a future kingdom and telling his apostles, in the future, in my kingdom, you will sit down with me and have fellowship and eat with me at my table in my kingdom that is yet to come. But it was physical. And you will sit on 12 thrones in that future kingdom. So it is future. Well, what else about the kingdom of God? Well, it's physical, it's spiritual, it also, as I just alluded to, it is future, Matthew 25 Verse 34, where Jesus says at the end of the age when he returns at his second coming and he separates the sheep from the goats and he will invite those who are his own at the end of the age and he says, inherit the kingdom of God that has been prepared for you before the foundation of the world. So there is a future component to the kingdom of God. That's actually ultimately when it gets all fulfilled. But not only is there a future component to the kingdom of God, there is a present component right now that is imminent in terms of the kingdom of God. A spiritual reality that you can partake in and enjoy right now. Luke 17, 21, we'll see it later where Jesus tells his followers and the Pharisees, you've misunderstood what the kingdom of God is. As a matter of fact, the kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God is here right now. So it is present. How do you enter the kingdom of God? Number nine. You enter the kingdom of God only one way, by doing what Jesus said in John chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. He told that religious person, Nicodemus, you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Then he had to explain it. Well, what do you mean? You have to be born by water and the Spirit. You have to be born by the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual transaction. Then he had to go into the full explanation of what the gospel is, that you're a sinner and only God can save you. And you need to be transformed from the inside out. By God, by His initiative, not by your works, by being born again. That is the only way you can enter into the kingdom of God. So when you come to hear the Christian message or gospel and you realize, oh, I am sinful, I am wicked, I am God's enemy, I was born that way, I deserve punishment, I deserve God's wrath. And you cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the only one that can save you, who died on a cross to absorb the wrath of the Father intended for you as a sinner, which every sinner deserves. And Jesus hung on the cross and absorbed the wrath of Almighty God on behalf of anyone who would repent of their sin and trust in Him. Jesus died in their place. Then He was buried in fulfillment of Scripture. He rose again from the dead in fulfillment of Scripture. He ascended back into heaven. He reigns in glory. He's the Savior of the world. He's calling all sinners to repent and believe in Him. That's the gospel. That is the good news. This is all about the kingdom of God. And when you believe that message and recognize that you are sinful, you are wicked, and you are separated from God, and there's only one way to the Father in heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ. If you believe that and cry out to God and beat your breast and say, be merciful to me, to God, the sinner, God will answer that prayer instantaneously. And you will be born again and spiritually immediately transferred out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of his beloved Son. And you have entered into the kingdom. To answer the question, a very complicated question, are you in the kingdom of God today? If you are a Christian, you are. How'd you get in? If you know the king. If you know Jesus, you're in. He is the king, you're one of his citizens. And entry is only through one way, believing in him. 
Is this all there? So we're in the kingdom right now? Yes. Well, it doesn't look like it. It doesn't look like a king. This looks like a fallen, cursed world. Well, it is. But you know the king. As a matter of fact, the king is not even here. He's in abstentia. But he's coming again. So the kingdom is here. There are spiritual, real, literal realities. We know the king. We have a personal relationship with him. But that's not all. The best is yet to come. The king is coming. And there will be a reunion with the king. And there will be complete fulfillment of all these promises in the Old Testament about the coming kingdom of God. And it will be literally on the earth in the future. The world is not ending in 10 years over global warming. What did Jesus say? Matthew chapter 6. Pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That was a prayer of Jesus. Jesus' prayers are always answered 100%. That is going to happen. That is the good news. That's what we look forward to. That is the kingdom of God. And that's why it's glorious to be a believer and follow Christ the King. Let's go ahead and look at some more details on Luke 26. We're not going to exhaust all of these truths, but I just want to give you an overview so that you can read this on your own, know how to study it and approach it. And one of the best ways is to take Luke chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 5, where you have the Beatitudes. It's, it was pretty much the same message, if not the very same day and same sermon. It may have not been the same day, but Jesus had the same message, but they go together. If you look at Luke chapter 6, verse 20 to 26, notice how this message that Luke put down for us, it's structured in a very specific way. He starts out with four blessings. Blessed are you. It's very personal. Blessed are you. And it's present tense right now. I know the world has fallen. People are sinful. You're sinful. Satan is real. But right now, present tense, you can be blessed. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. He says it four times. What does blessed mean? Makarios is the Greek word. Some people say happy. I don't like that translation. I think if happiness is fleeting, superficial, dependent upon circumstances, not really what it means. This is a deep-seated, lasting, spiritual reality on the inside that God puts there permanently. That kind of blessing. This is the blessing of God. A better translation would be, not blessed are you or happy are you, but fulfilled are you, satisfied are you, content are you. As a matter of fact, he even uses these words in verse 21. Satisfied, you shall be satisfied. That's on the inside. That's talking about a spiritual reality, a transaction on the inside, an attitude, deep-seated. This isn't superficial. This isn't shallow. This isn't fleeting. This is knowing the God of the universe on a personal level, that he, you are a child in his family. You are secure in him. He loves you. And the world could be falling down around you, and you are absolutely secure in the hand of Almighty Christ. That's where this attitude flows from. That's why you can be blessed, no matter what's going on. That's what blessing means. Blessed are you. And not everybody can have this blessing. There are conditions to be a blessed person in this life. If you don't know God, you are not blessed. If you don't know God, if you don't know Christ personally, you are cursed. Why do I say that? Because that's what the Bible says. Jesus says it in verse 24 through 26. After giving four blessings, and what that means is, if you know God personally, through me, the Messiah, you are a blessed person. You are a secure person. You are a saved person. You are a protected person by the Creator and the Savior. If you don't know Christ personally, then you are cursed. Verses 24 to 26. Woe to you. Woe to you. Woe to you. Woe to you. 
Cursed are you, anathema are you. You shall condemned are you. That's what it means, literally. This kind of terminology, uh, blessings to to one person and cursings to another, that's used throughout the Bible. That's how God operates with his people with creation. You are either blessed or cursed from the standpoint of the Creator. He said it to Adam. Blessed are you if you obey, eat from these trees, don't eat from that one. Cursed are you if you eat from this tree, you shall die. That is blessing and cursing. That's all throughout the Bible. Matt, uh, when Moses takes the two million Jews through the, the desert and gets to the Jordan River and they're about to cross into the promised land after 40 years, he takes those two million people, separates them into two groups, puts one, about a million people on Mount Gerizim and then another million people on the other mountain right there. And there's a valley in between. And he has those people shout out a million in unison, the blessings of God on everybody if they obey. Then when they're done, those million people shout from that mountaintop at those million people the curses of God if they disobey. Think being at a basketball game with the two crowds yelling at each other. Mostly curses, not a whole lot of blessings. But anyway, but that's right there in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Blessing and cursing. Jesus said the same thing all over the New Testament. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not believe in the Son does not have life, and the wrath of God abides, present tense, on him. Paul said the same thing, Romans 6.23. That if you believe in Christ and the gospel, then the gift is eternal life. If you don't believe in the gospel, then you are cursed with the wrath of God. So blessing and cursing. So that's how Luke breaks this down. Blessed are you, blessed are you. And those are all about spiritual blessings, knowing God properly, and all those woes are curses if you don't know Christ. And that's if you willfully reject Christ. So let's just look at the theme of the blessings. How do you get in a position of blessing and knowing God? Very simple. It's all about your attitude and how you respond to the truth of Christ. Verse 1, blessed are you who are poor. And you need to look at Matthew because he says, you who are poor in spirit. It's not materially poor. It's you are poor in spirit on the inside. You have no resources. You are utterly dependent on someone else. You are not self-sufficient, spiritually speaking. You've come to a point where you realize, I have no resources to offer you, God the Creator. I cannot save myself. And you acknowledge that. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. If you do not have that attitude, you cannot be saved by God. If you are a self-sufficient person, you don't need God, you can do it on your own, or you can earn God's favor by obedience and good works, that's not poor in spirit. So this really takes humility, but also honest recognition of your status before the Creator. But if you are poor in spirit, and you understand you are needy upon the Creator, then Jesus gives the promise, yours is the kingdom of God. You can be saved. Verse 21, blessed are you, if you those who hunger now. And this is hungering after truth, hungering after righteousness, hungering after holiness. This is a, an awareness and admission of your own sin. The thing you find most disgusting in life is not somebody else. It is your own sin. That's what it means to hunger for truth and righteousness. And you can't attain it without God's help. That's what Jesus is talking about. So you can't know God until you recognize your sin. That's why he said repent. Turn from your sin. Ask God to forgive you. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. So it's a spiritual hunger. 
a spiritual desire, a spiritual longing, wanting to know the Creator, wanting to be liberated from your indwelling sin, wanting to have security in this life. That can only come with a proper relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The only people that are really satisfied in this life, by the way, according to God, kind of a secret, it's Christians. It's born-again, true Christians. Because they have the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, living in them. That's the promise of Christ. And then also the third one, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. It's weeping. This is having an honest assessment of the fallen world in which we live. You look around and you don't see utopia and you're not vying for utopia. You look around and you see that God has cursed this earth because of sinful humanity, including me. It is fallen. It is broken. It is corrupt. It's degenerating. We can't fix it. We got ourselves in this mess through the disobedience of Adam and every human being since then. Only God can fix it and restore it. We see death. We see misery. We are sensitive to all this. We acknowledge all this. We interpret all of this through the lens of God's truth. We have an accurate assessment of it. Our heart breaks over it. And that is expressed through weeping, brokenness of heart, sympathy, true Christ-like compassion. That's what he means. And the only way you can give that, get that is to have a transformed heart which comes only from knowing Christ. So all of these are fulfilled through a supernatural, spiritual, invisible transaction initiated by God through his gospel on the inner person, not external religion, in contrast to the Pharisees. And then finally, number 22, the fourth blessing is, blessed are you when men hate you. Oh, by the way, if you enter into the kingdom of Christ to become one of his followers, you just made a bunch of enemies. You're a minority in the world. People hate you. That's what he says. Blessed are you when men hate you, when people hate you. Hate is an attitude on the inside. And then it just escalates from there. First somebody hates you because you're a Christian. Then it gets worse. Then you're ostracized. They also ostracize you. Then they set you aside. Boot you out of the synagogue 2,000 years ago and ostracize you in different ways today. So they hate you. Then they isolate you. Then what do they do? Then they insult you. It's progressive. Then after that, they scorn your name as evil. They just destroy your reputation. They might even put it on the internet. Well, how are we supposed to... And by the way, all for the sake of the Son of Man. Not for being an obnoxious person, but for truth. You got isolated for truth. And Jesus says, oh, poor you. Oh, poor... Not at all. Here's a command. Verse, what are you supposed to do? Be glad. Be glad. It's a command. In that day, in the day that you are persecuted for Christ, and leap for joy. Not in an arrogant way, but you're leaping for joy knowing, God, I must be doing something right. They hated you. They persecuted you. They killed you. They're going to come after one of your followers representing you faithfully. If you're trying to be a peacemaker and a, a, a man pleaser and an appeaser in this life, you're going to have a hard time being a biblical Christian. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. God is watching. He sees you. He's going to reward your faithfulness. It's going to be glorious. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. They hated the prophets of God. Why wouldn't they hate you? 
Then he goes on to the woes. Now it's uh, specifically talking about those who would reject Christ. But woe to you who are rich. You have everything you need in this life, so you think. You don't need God. You don't need Jesus. You don't need the narrow way. You don't need the Bible. You don't need biblical truth. You're satisfied. You're content. You've got it figured out. That's most people in the world, by the way, according to Jesus. You know what? If you have that attitude, you are receiving everything you desire, but you're only getting it in this life. You will be filled and content in this life, and that's it. Because in the next life, you will have nothing. You will have no comfort. You will have no satisfaction. Jesus is telling both groups to live in light of the future. Uh, verse 25, another woe. Woe to you who are well-fed now. Same thing. These are self-sufficient people. They have it all now. For you shall be hungry. You shall be hungry when? In the next life, at the end of the age, when reality comes in from Jesus the judge for all eternity. This is your eternal fate. You will be hungry. You will be needy. You will be unsatisfied. You will be cursed. You will be in hell. You will have conscious punishment. That's what he's getting at. Woe to those of you who laugh now, who don't like me, who reject Christ. They laugh at Christians. They laugh at truth. They laugh at our ridiculous ideas like heaven and hell. Our rid ridiculous ideas like sin. Like a devil is real. They laugh in our face. Jesus rebukes them, what are you who laugh now? For you shall mourn and weep. That is a description of eternal hell. And then finally the last woe. Woe to you. And really the you is woe to all of you who hear my message, who hear about Christ, who hear the gospel, who hear the call to repentance, who hear Christ calling you the creator to acknowledge your sin and bow the knee to the king. All of you and refuse to listen. All of you who harden your hearts. That's who he's talking to. Woe to you. When all men speak well of you, they compliment you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. That is not a barometer for gauging whether you're on the right path or not. Is when you have people patting you on the back and complimenting you, and you are the esteemed and popular one. That is not the litmus test for true spirituality. It's actually just the opposite. Pastor Cliff, I'm at work and I'm surrounded by all these unbelievers and nobody likes me and they isolate me and they don't talk to me in the, the office break room and they say things about me and I found writing on the bathroom wall about me and, oh, praise God, that's awesome. What a witness. Thank you for your faithfulness. Rejoice and be glad. Your reward in heaven is great. Amen? Well, right now we have the privilege of some baptisms, so... Let's get ready for that to celebrate these saved souls as we commit our time to the Father in prayer. Father, we thank you for our time together and just a reminder of Jesus, our King, and just a glimpse of the reality of what the kingdom of God is. And thank you that finite fallen sinners can enter into the kingdom of God even today in this fallen world by knowing Jesus, the King. We give you all the praise and glory in Christ's name. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.